This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Just within the last hour, the University of Hawaii's athletic director announced he is planning to retire come June 2nd. David Matlin has led the department since 2015 through a tumultuous time with the pandemic and with the sudden loss of Aloha Stadium. Earlier this morning, before this announcement became official, we had the opportunity to talk to University of Hawaii President David Lassner at length on a number of subjects. It was a chance to reflect on how well we've weathered the challenges of our health and economic crises, but also to address the more recent turmoil of what to do about a new football stadium. The Ching-filled build-out to accommodate 17,000 spectators is still on track, but Lassner's open to what could happen with a new stadium in Halava. You know, the Board of Regents, when we talked with them about it, they were pretty clear that they felt uh, we needed to support a Division One FBS football program that the unexpected to us loss of Aloha Stadium meant we could no longer be in compliance over the long term. We've been hoping, you know, that a plan would come together to rebuild a great new stadium by the state. That has not yet happened. I know Governor Green is committed to it, but we haven't seen the detailed plan yet. You know, the concerns have been raised about, you know, a number of issues and the financial viability of the plan that is put before him. And so we're really less interested in who builds it and how it gets built. We want a great place to play football for our fans and our players that can support a Division One program, you know, with the way a modern stadium looks. And we want a financial deal so that we can afford to play there. And the point, you know, when nothing moved with Aloha Stadium, that's when the Board of Regents approved the expansion of Ching Field, which we consider to be a temporary facility. We hope we are not playing there long term, but at this point, you know, we need to have a solution that's under our control that maintains compliance. I was just going back and saw that it was December two years ago when you folks were told that uh, right. Lady Aloha Stadium was closing, and you didn't have much choice at that point, but to you know, build your own. Right. So what were the barriers, though, when the negotiations were going on, let's say in the last six months, about UH stepping in to build the new stadium? The money was appropriated to the stadium authority and DBED, the operating funds and capital funds. So we're not really in the direct loop. You know, we were never directly given a proposal to say, here, here's $350 million. Will you build a stadium? So that's that, you know, was reported in some sense, but it was not a reality. And so what would sweeten the deal for you, you know, for you folks to step well, that, in? I, I don't think that's a deal that's particularly on the table. I mean, I think we just want a stadium to be built that is a modern stadium where we can play football in an affordable manner. We're very happy to not be building a stadium. Okay, but you're not closing the door on somehow working with the local stadium? We will work with whoever to try to get this done. I mean, it is a priority for us. Football is really important to the state. And I think, you know, that was clear, you know, when in the region's conversation, they were not going near the possibility of, you know, trying to shut down Division One FBS football and for the only program within over 2,300 miles. And what are your thoughts on, you know, this first year with uh, Timmy Chang? It was a tough year, but it's certainly not unexpected. He came into a tough situation. He's a first-year head coach. I think he rebuilt the morale with the team. I think he does a remarkable job with the community. And I think he's got some, you know, great recruits coming in. So, I don't think anyone expected a great first season, and I think we're all looking forward to improvement next year. You know, and with the headlines recently, you know, everybody is concerned about the health of our football players with Atua and his concussions and, you know, the this latest thing with the football player and, you know, going into cardiac right. arrest. I mean, it's on people's minds. I, I mean, I think we're we're extremely careful. We have great medical attention in our training staff. We're scrupulous about following concussion protocols. We report to the Board of Regents every year on, you know, incidences of concussions in all of our sports. It's not just football, actually. And the equipment keeps getting better every year. You know, I'm glad we're not in the situation that, you know, the ones you've referred to, where we've seen some pretty catastrophic kinds of um, injuries, and I, I have to reserve judgment. I don't know enough about either of those situations to really comment. 
but we've been really careful and I think we're also very clear that the success of our student athletes from a health perspective, a safety perspective, and their academic success, those are priorities to us more than, you know, some of the other institutions where the whole program is about money. We've just come off of the anniversary of, of Title IX, uh, and I know as part of the build-out plan for Ching Stadium that you've got plans to put in a new soccer field for the women right. as well right. as a We're track. really excited about that. Our women's soccer team has been playing at YPO, which is not a great place for them to attract you know, students and, and other fans. So we're really glad to be able to bring them back to campus. It's a great side effect of where this you know, project has taken us. You know, with the talk about the Aloha Stadium and all the other sports that might be interested in, in using the venue, soccer is one of them. Uh, you know, we saw what happened with the women's soccer team uh, and the possibilities for our players here. Uh, but, you know, let's say the state goes its own way and builds Aloha Stadium. Then what happens with the UH facility, with Ching Field? Well, we would probably just use it for other purposes. We haven't really developed that plan, but we think there are other things we could be doing on campus that would benefit. We probably wouldn't need 15,000 seats, but the current configuration is a pretty nice configuration, to be honest, for all kinds of other activities. And uh, traffic, has that been uh, much of an issue in the neighborhood? We've been okay so far, and we know planning to 15,000 will we'll need to address, you know, particularly parking concerns. We've talked casually about shuttles and the like for the, you know, the coming fo uh, fall football season. Well, you know, you folks did just get uh, a nice feather in your cap with the uh, publicity about the esports program being, you know, number one in the country. Uh, I know it's a little different from, uh, you know, football and soccer, but your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we're super excited about that program. You know, we try to stay ahead of what's happening in higher education and in the community. And, you know, we've built that program up over just the the past few years and we've got a great leader who's you know one of our recent PhD graduates who has actually studied uh, esports in academia and has become quite a known national and international uh, player that's really brought a lot of attraction to us from my background I was really pleased to see us hosting the um, international tournaments and we leveraged Hawaii's position in the middle of the Pacific for low latency fiber optic connections to equalize opportunity between Asia and North American participants here when people couldn't travel because of COVID. And we're providing a ton of opportunity to kids. I think, you know, it's easy for parents who worry about, you know, watching their kids just gaming, you know, in the, the stereotype of the sweaty kid in the basement playing games all day. That's not what esports is. It's an entire ecosystem of not just the players who are, you know, they are professionals and, you know, the teams we brought in, these were paid professionals who get paid to, you know, compete in electronic games with competitors from all over the world. But there's also, you know, the sports casting, the marketing, there's the construction of games and the technology around it. So, so far, esports is well over a billion dollars a year as an industry globally, and it's only growing. And we're creating great opportunities, I think, for our students from Hawaii, as well as those who come here for this opportunity to really get uh, not just a great experience while they're students, but for some of them, they'll be preparing for careers, you know, more of them in the industry than as actual gamers, you know, professional gamers, that's a limited opportunity, as, as is the case with intercollegiate athletics in general. That was David Lassner, University of Hawaii president, who talked to us this morning about the uh, future of UH athletics and the recent national recognition of our eSports program. We'll continue our conversation with Lassner right after a break.
Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Join us for a live taping of The Splendid Table at Hawaii Theater on January 18. Join Splendid Table host Francis Lamb for conversations with local guests about Hawaii's food culture and cuisine. Get your tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Co-presented by HPR and the Culinary Institute of the Pacific. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. If you're just joining us, we have been talking with UH President David Lassner about what to do about a new uh, no, uh, new Aloha Stadium and where UH might fit in. But we also discussed the university's strategic plan and how it's poised to address our workforce shortages and other weaknesses in our economy. Computer science is your background. And, you know, when you took over the information and technology area at the University of Hawaii, I mean, I don't know, did you ever imagine that we would get to this point? I mean, you know, we've got this broadband initiative now that, uh, you know, the university has been asked to lead. That's actually, you know, that's in my wheelhouse as well. And I'm delighted to see my successor, Garrett Yoshimi, is doing an amazing job leading it now. But it's something that I was involved in in my previous job for a couple decades, really, including when the state first created its first broadband task force. I was appointed to that and actually ended up chairing it, along with then-Senator David Ige was a member of that task force. So this has been in our wheelhouse. We've pushed broadband for ourselves and for the state for many, many years. During the last recession, there was substantial federal stimulus funding, and the university got in front of the project that actually deployed fiber optics to every public school and every public library on every island. That was our project. So this is, you know, part of our, our commitment to serve the entire state where we have expertise and capability. We're happy to use it to move the entire state forward. Well, we saw what happened with the pandemic yeah. and the challenges that we had with the, the Labor Department and, and with education, you know, with uh, distance learning. So th there's so much more that we could do, you know, the possibilities of building this out and doing yeah. it right. So, I, I mean, I'd say maybe just a couple of thoughts about that. One is I'm incredibly proud of the university's response uh, during COVID. We succeeded educationally. We succeeded financially. Our students continued to make progress toward their degrees and graduate without, you know, a significant amount of loss of progress. And part of that was because we had a, a really strong infrastructure and set of capabilities in place that just had to be expanded. So we weren't building a whole lot from scratch to get through that. And of course, the federal stimulus funds were a huge help to us in keeping ourselves you know, safe as well as making the investments we needed to succeed educationally. One of the things that really, it was sad, but I'm, I'm glad that an appreciation throughout the community that occurred is when we, when we issued a broadband report, I think it was around 2009 or so, and we tried to talk about how important broadband was to every aspect of life, people really didn't believe us. And now I think everybody believes us. When they saw what happened during the pandemic, that you needed broadband to learn, to work, to shop, to visit your doctor, to stay in touch with family and relatives. And you needed a lot of it because in a multifamily home, you might have a bunch of people doing different things at the same time. You know, th that realization would not have occurred without something as catastrophic as the as the pandemic, I don't think. And coming out of the pandemic, the other area that we need to work on is workforce development. You know, uh, our board just approved a new strategic plan, and it's just got four points. 
and I know I will I could wax on about it but I will say one of our key imperatives is to meet Hawaii workforce needs of today and tomorrow and what we realized is that if we don't step up and take leadership in that it won't happen and you know healthcare workforce is the first one we're really digging into but we're equally committed to understand how we can address you know the long standing teacher shortage there's just not a reason that we shouldn't be able to educate enough people who want to be in Hawaii to commit to these jobs in Hawaii which tend to be you know pretty good paying jobs and at, in healthcare you know the wages can go up really quite far but we need to get them in you know at the entry level as quickly as we can and we've got some great initiatives going you know the two things i'm most excited about one is we had the best year in our history in extramural funding and one of the strong contributors to that was our community colleges which competitively received a number of significant you know eight digit grants in workforce development to provide free training for the people of Hawaii to qualify for jobs and then we're also working really hard with employers that what we've realized is we can't just sit back on our campuses and do this ourselves we need to engage in deep and meaningful ways with employers and the healthcare association of Hawaii has really stepped up on behalf of the healthcare industry and i believe we will have an equally strong partnership with the department of education to look at you know how are we going to work together to eliminate their workforce shortages much of that from what i can tell is due to the large number of teachers they need to bring in from other places who tend not to stay here as long as the teachers who are born and raised here. Whether it's the teacher shortage or the nursing shortage or a doctor shortage, I know a lot of what we hear the talk about is housing. And you do have a building coming up not too far from Bachman Hall, you know, which is faculty housing, right, and graduate student housing. Yeah, we have two public-private partnerships. These are great projects because you know they're not based on a foundation of state investment and it's one of the things we have had to learn how to do and it's something the state hasn't been all that successful at and when I say public-private partnership I mean a true public-private partnership where the private partner has skin in the game and financial investment and risk in the game as well the first one coming up is actually student housing it's our rise project which is focused on helping develop the next generation of innovators and that's something we did with our university of hawaii foundation in the old atherton y property which you know that construction is going on and the second one we don't have shovels in the ground yet and that's on the old national marine fisheries building across from our student housing next to east west center that one we're still having to finalize plans it's been struck pretty hard by the impact on the economy we were not contracted before inflation hit supply chain issues hit so we're going to have to see how the financial picture looks for that one still before we ink the final deal but you know certainly we're committed to doing it as a public private partnership rather than the typical just ask the state for money and you know hope for the best and as we look you know down the road 2023 i mean you feel pretty good about where we're sitting as a university i feel great about the university i think you know we're digging in and i think our leadership at every level understands that we need to step up and be the university the state needs and we need to do that with all 10 of our campuses working together we have an amazing opportunity here as a statewide system of public higher education where we provide opportunity for literally anyone in the state to get from where they are to where they want to be as long as they're willing to do the hard work and you know have the capability so whether it's an 18 year old fresh out of high school or you know a 40 year old who's looking to retrain for a new job or somebody who just wants to upskill we're looking at all of those things and our community colleges have unique roles in that our two uh, regional institutions have unique roles in that and our great research university have you know an important role in that you know when we talk about the extramural funding and we're really proud of going over half a billion dollars that's not that's not really money you know just to fund the university that's money that is being invested by 
primarily the federal government, but also others, in the University of Hawaii addressing the needs of Hawaii and the nation. And it's because they see our capabilities in all kinds of areas like health research, cancer research, indigenous health, Pacific Islands, climate change, energy resilience, understanding of the Pacific. You know, all of these things are areas that are important to the state and the country where UH has incredible capacity in our faculty and where our students are really eager to learn and participate and discover. I'm really excited about getting to lead this amazing institution in, you know, my home, which is the best place on earth. All right. Well, David Lassner, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thanks, Catherine. Take Alrighty. care. All righty. Aloha. That was University of Hawaii President David Lassner, who took time in this first week of the new year to reflect on the possibilities of a new Aloha Stadium, as well as how Hawaii's public university is poised to help with our workforce shortage of everything from teachers to nurses. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we turn the clocks forward and predict what's in store for 2023. We'll get a perspective from the executive director of the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation to see what projects are on top of the list. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Drama in the House. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby joins us from the nation's capital. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you're up on the hill today. I am standing outside the House chamber where Kevin McCarthy is about to lose his uh, sixth bid to become Speaker of the House. You know, your story today talks about poor Jill Takuda. You know, she's a, a newbie, a freshman, and she's been waiting to be sworn in, but that can't happen. Uh, that's right. So uh, the situation here is Kevin McCarthy, who's a Republican from California, is trying to become Speaker of the House. He's been spent, he's spent the past several years trying to put himself into this position, but he's facing a lot of opposition from uh, the far right of his party. They're demanding all sorts of concessions from him before they give him his vote. And of course, uh, their vote is needed because the House is pretty narrowly divided with Republicans in, in control by only a handful of uh, members. So of course, a small group can have enormous sway. Now, what this all means for uh, Jill Takuda and Ed Case, other new members of Congress, uh, is that they can't be sworn in. In effect, the House of Representatives uh, there is no House of Representatives right now. Um, the, you need a speaker before they can be sworn in. And until that happens, legislation, uh, at the legislative process, at least within this chamber, is at a standstill. And uh, Joel Takuda, who was elected in November, is still technically considered a member-elect. Uh, of course, she was supposed to be sworn in yesterday. I know, poor thing. You know, she's got all the lay. Her family's there. And, yeah, it's just uh, stymied at this point. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, member-elect uh, Takuda, she brought her mother's Bible with her to be sworn in on during a, uh, a ceremony of swearing in. Um, she even dressed up wearing uh, an outfit uh, that had the print of the Kuei papers, the annexation papers that were submitted to Congress in 1897 um, in opposition to Hawaii's annexation into the United States. Um, she had on a number of lay, including 
Um, one that was given to her by U.S. Senator Major Rono, and another that was made of kikui nuts that were sold in her own district uh, where she's from in Kaneohe. And um, today, I will say, I, have, I haven't seen her uh, yet in person, but I did see her post a video recently on, uh, on Twitter of her uh, wearing a new kikui nut lei and a new... Uh, <laughs> Uh, orchid lay as well so uh you know while it's unlikely she's going to get sworn in today um she's at least dressing up the part well i know there's been a lot of brouhaha with the republicans uh, you know and uh, even some raising questions about whether mccarthy should be occupying the office of the speaker since he hasn't technically been voted in yet Right. I mean, there's a lot of questions that have been floating around uh, because this is unprecedented. This hasn't happened in at least 100 years. Um, And so people are trying to figure out, well, what's next? I mean, it seems like there's a stalemate. And until uh, some movement is made, like I said, the House is stalled. And there are questions about whether the members can even uh, get paid. Now, I talked to uh, uh, Takuda and uh, also Congressman Ed Case yesterday about this and whether this sort of um, bodes well for their ability to work within the Republican Party. And I think in general, they sort of see it the way that many other people are looking at this, and they see a party that is dysfunctional right now. Yeah, well, hopefully Jill Takuda gets uh, settled into her new office with her staff uh, and her that she's got enough lay uh, to last, uh, you know, the week until uh, she can actually take the oath on her mother's Bible. Yeah, I mean, we're just going to have to wait and see uh, to when everything unfolds. And um, until then, I know that she is settling into her office. But when I was there yesterday, uh, you know, all the shelves were pretty bare. But like I said, she just got here. And, um, you know, maybe uh, soon she will actually be sworn in. Okay. Lots of drama this first week uh, there at the House. But thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate you uh, uh, being available for us. Thank you for having me. Okay. That was reporter Nick Gruby at our nation's capital with today's reality check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. We are just coming off what's traditionally a busy holiday period for travel in the United States, including here in Hawaii. International travel to the state remains relatively low, but there are several recent developments relating to travel in the Asia-Pacific. HPR's Bill Dorman is here with some of them. And Bill, we start with China? Yeah, it's true. Aloha. Good morning, Kathy, Catherine. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You know, the, the New Year bringing the prospect of, of change, especially when it comes to Chinese now traveling outside their country, which has not been a factor, as you know, since the pandemic began, really. China now is facing severe outbreaks of COVID, especially Beijing, other large cities. Late last month, the government started to loosen a lot of restrictions, uh, and they did so pretty rapidly. One of those was to ease restrictions for people coming back into China, including Chinese citizens returning from international trips. So instantly around the region, a lot of countries got very excited saying, ooh, China's coming back as a force, but at the same time balancing that with concern about health, about exposure to uh, potential COVID uh, virus and now a lot of countries requiring negative negative COVID tests for Chinese visitors. The United States is, Canada, Japan, France, Australia, South Korea, among others. And the latest twist, just yesterday, the Chinese government threatened what it called countermeasures based on the principle of reciprocity. It's seeming to mean that if you test our travelers, there are going to be consequences for you. Yeah, like what kind of consequences? <laughs> that is the leading question right now. It's a little vague, but one concern of several countries is that it sounds like potential restrictions of Chinese visiting certain countries that, that test, and that's uh, getting a lot of attention in the media in certain parts of Asia. Um, in the years leading up to the pandemic, a lot of countries became more uh, dependent on Chinese tourists, especially those which have or are trying to develop hospitality sectors. Uh, so really, you can think of this as, as kind of a supply chain disruption with the supply being Chinese travelers. Uh, Thailand 
for example, is is one uh, example. The economy relies on tourism, more than 10% of its economy. Uh, and China, historically, before the pandemic, was its biggest market by far. Uh, and now Thailand hasn't yet announced whether it's going to test Chinese travelers. And there seems to be some nervousness, both in the government and on the industry side, about what to do. There's a meeting tomorrow in Thailand, several government agency heads to talk about can they come up with an approach that keeps the Chinese market in play, but also maintains balances with with public health? Uh, you know, uh, you know, I know, the headlines today are you know expressing concern that the numbers that we're seeing out of China may not be the real numbers. Well, surprise, surprise. Yeah, uh, WHO uh, saying that they're undercounting severely, and again, it's as with other numbers and increasingly economic numbers as well, but health numbers in particular coming out of, of China, of what is credible and, and what that estimate really is. There's there's really no way of knowing that, and there's not going to be for a while, but that, it's a concern in the region for sure. Yeah, and we're still not out of the, you know, the pandemic just yet. I mean, we got the latest numbers locally. Uh, people I know are still telling me, yep, I came down with COVID this week or I got exposed to a positive case. So uh, still concerned, you know, even here. It's a concern. And when you have something like China, again, that double-edged sword that a long-term important market within Asia for tourism, but those health concerns, public health concerns, very much a factor as well. I know even at some of the uh, local shopping centers here, you know, we're used to hearing the messages in Chinese and Japanese, Mm. and Mm. we're still waiting for the Japanese to come back. It's true. You know, that's our own supply chain here that's been a little disrupted. Saw a bit of a bump over over New Year's, again, relative to very low baseline. Um, But before COVID, uh, again, you had an average of 5,000 visitors a day in January, and and now we just had our first day above 3,000 since the pandemic. And, and where this goes, uh, I mean, th- there are concerns in terms of COVID. Also, currency, you know, with, with Japan always has gotten a lot of attention. That actually, after a rough year and a rough fall, has been strengthening lately. So the buying power of Japanese is growing. Uh, yesterday, it reached 129 to the dollar, strongest level since June. Uh, today, it fell back a little bit this morning, about 132 but the trend has been strengthening. And so at this level, it's already 15% higher than it was in October. But also hotel rates, stubbornly high in Hawaii. And that doesn't always get as much attention in terms of factors that are part of this. And again, there's a little hesitation um, in terms of Japan, outbound travel, international travel so far. Uh, these are lag, what economists call lagging figures. It takes them a while to, to come out with these. But what they have so far, outbound international from Japan to anywhere, has not taken off the way it has in, in some other cases. You know, the, the West Coast of the United States, for example, very bounced back pretty quickly, and especially in terms of travel to Hawaii. But um, the comfort level of many Japanese when it comes to international travel, that may take some time to snap back. And uh, we'll see, uh, again, where that outbound travel overall is down about 80% from pre-pandemic levels. So it's still taking some time. Yeah, I just had a friend who returned from Japan, and uh, he was crowing because he said, yeah, I spent a whole weekend. I think I only paid like $500 for my hotel room. <laughs> you know. And I bet lots of, uh, if he was not traveling in business or first class, I bet lots of room in the plane. Yes. Um, because that's, that's what we've seen in terms of the split with travel here. For wealthy Japanese, and eh, it's, you know, not counting not mattering as much but there's a whole section of of travel that this represents that is more cautious you've had inflation in the united states again not just those hotel rates um and it's going to take you know just so we say in hawaii that hey we're ready for you come on over it's not that simple it's going to take some time not just flipping a switch golden week bookings late april early may uh, that's going to be an interesting time to see what happens with those because that can be an indication, again, before we get to April and May, how things are looking. And everyone from Uhiro to the state government 
looks at that uh, uh, that, that factor of Japanese travel as an important part of our local economy. Yeah, so uh, let's see, we've got the uh, a Lunar New Year coming up. Uh, and Yeah, we just have to look down the road for 2023 and uh, hope that things look up. It's true. Ironically, Time Out Tokyo is in top destinations for Lunar New Year within Asia, Japan, Thailand, South Korea. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill. You bet. We have been talking to uh, HBR's news director, uh, and the voice of the Asia Minute, Bill Dorman. Uh, tune in for more on this on tomorrow's Asia Minute. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And this week's Manu Minute is a showstopper, the peacock. You'll easily recognize those magnificent birds on site, but are you familiar with their song? Well, we've got that for you today, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's your Manu Minute with University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Male Indian peafowls, or peacocks, are among the most recognizable birds in the world. Native to southern India and Sri Lanka, they were first brought to Hawaii in the mid-1800s, and peacocks and peahens have now become established on all the main Hawaiian islands. They can live in a variety of habitats, including neighborhoods, parks, and woodlands, and with their omnivorous diet, eat a range of foods including fruits, grains, insects, and even small vertebrates like lizards and cokey frogs. In addition to being so visually unique, the songs of peacocks are also very distinctive. Many people in Hawaii have heard their song, even if they may not know it was a peacock making it. The reason why peacocks have such massive, iridescent, and beautiful tails has been a source of wonder for centuries. We usually assume that most characteristics of animals have evolved to make them better adapted to surviving in their environment. But how could such a large, showy tail improve a peacock's chance of survival? Even Charles Darwin, after publishing his theory of natural selection, famously said that looking at a peacock's tail made him sick because natural selection cannot explain it. This over time led him to propose a second theory known as sexual selection, which is now widely accepted and holds that showy ornaments on animals, such as the peacock's tail, have evolved through selection by females. In other words, females choose those males with the largest, prettiest tails, and those are the ones that pass on their genes to the next generation, while the males with the less showy tails may get no matings at all. This often happens in mating arenas known as lex, where multiple males all come together in a group competition to show off their tail ornaments to choosy females. Over time, the tails evolve to be showier and showier because that's what the females want. Peacocks are known as pikake in Hawaiian, and they have an important connection with Hawaiian royalty. Princess Kaiulani was so taken by the birds, she became known as the peacock princess. When a new sweet-scented species of jasmine flower was imported to Hawaii, Kaiulani fell in love with that as well and named it after her favorite bird. Pikake are still one of the most common flowers for lei across the islands, and it's said that the night Kaiulani died in 1899 at the age of 23, her peacocks screamed so loud they could be heard for miles away. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture. Today on The Daily, Michael Schwartz on a Times investigation into Russia's military failures that revealed new details about how a military superpower keeps making the same mistakes and why, despite all of that, its soldiers keep going back to fight. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily 
from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin Tuesday, January 17th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. into a family of musicians, volcanologist Leif Karlstrom got his first violin before his first bicycle. He carried his love of music with him, but never imagined it would play a role in his scientific study. Then, while teaching at the University of Oregon, Karlstrom came across colleagues in earth science who were turning earthquake data into sound, a process called sonification. A light bulb went off. Couldn't Karlstrom do the same thing with volcanoes? And what if he took it a step further to make something truly unique? The Volcano Listening Project was born. He has since made several volcanic music pieces, including one that uses data from our very own Kilauea. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote reached out to Karlstrom to hear more about the meeting of his two worlds. These worlds are quite different um, in most circumstances, you know, the, the world of music and the world of science. They occupy you know, different parts of our culture and the people who practice them seriously tend not to hang out together <laughs> for better or for worse. And so I, um, yeah, I, I, I kept them pretty separate and, and sort of intentionally so for, for many years. And it was only actually well, well after I, I started my current job at the University of Oregon that sort of came to me that there was some overlap that could be meaningful in both both spheres. How do you find music in a volcanic eruption? In, in some ways, you know, these are sort of very musical events, panic eruptions. You know, they build up, they have a climax, they <laughs> have a very musical structure, and that lends itself pretty well, no matter what the data type is, to representation via sound. One of your musical pieces with the Volcano Listening Project is called Hotel Kilauea. What about Kilauea caught your ear? Kilauea is, of course, the most active volcano in the world, so why wouldn't everyone want to study it? <laughs> and is currently, you know, one of the best monitored volcanoes on Earth. And so we, we have, you know, this really unique opportunity to, to look in great detail at what's going on at Kilauea. That's just a great opportunity for sonification because we have many concurrent data streams that together, of course, tell the scientific story, but also provide an opportunity to create, create sounds, create music. You know, the Hotel Kilauea represents a, a, a time period between the year 2000 and 2010. And, and I suppose listeners who are familiar with Kilauea would recognize that the latter part of that decade was when the Halimaumau crater opened and began a rather spectacular 20-year eruptive episode that ended in 2018, uh, called the Air Collapse. Generally speaking, I do separate the, the pure sonification part, which is just representing data via sound from the interpretation with uh, traditional or non-traditional instruments, which is, which is you know, subjective, artistic. The former, right, is something that, that you could do with, with any data set, right? And I view it on par with, you know, creating a, a plot or something that, you know, traditionally we look at scientific data this way, but, um, you know, for, for, for this piece in particular, for the Hotel Kilauea, we actually started with three different data sets. One of them, sort of a, a very long duration deformation of the Kilauea summit. Um, so we have that as a sort of through going slow motion. Superimposed on that, we have much more rapid deformation, which were episodes that happened episodically, not at a regular interval, but, but quite often throughout. Uh, the last sort of 20 plus years of, of Kilauea's activity and we use different types of sounds to represent each. They're very faithful to the data, but they're representing them in different ways sonically. Third data set that we used in that particular piece was a continuous gas uh, emissions reported at the summit, SO2, sulfur dioxide, gas being reported at Kilauea summit. That latter 
part of the decade, um, starting about 2007, we saw a lot of sulfur dioxide being emitted from the summit, coincident with the opening of that crater. And that's the third data set that we used. And we used a, a different type of sonification for that. So those are the three data sets. Um, and, and one could listen to those, right? And, and try to gain scientific insights on those. Um, what we then did is taking uh, off our science hats and putting on our musician hats. <laughs> I, I went into the recording studio with three musical uh, colleagues, another violin violinist, a, uh, a bass player, stand-up bass player, and uh, a guitarist. And we just sort of listened to the data, sat in the same room together around uh, a couple of microphones, um, and, and just improvised to it. So you can think of it as, as sort of like free jazz, but directed by the volcano. And the result is, I guess, uh, the recording that we have, Hotel Philia. guitarist and bass player both use the, I don't know, a technique that's maybe formally called prepared, <laughs> prepared guitar, prepared, prepared bass. And really what it just means is like messing with the sounds by sticking things between the strings. And um, I think there was a paper clip involved. There was some sort of crumpled up paper. There was, I think, a rubber band. <laughs> things that, that sort of made the instrument seem a little less familiar. Um, and those, those together, uh, I think made for some pretty unique sounds. And when you listen back to the piece now, what tone do you feel it has? How does it make you feel? Uh, well, it is rather ominous. Um, I've been told that it sounds like a horror movie soundtrack. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't actually, I, I guess I don't, I, I don't really try to overinterpret or emote too much. We, we chose a particular scale modality to, to play in, which I think naturally gave it this tone. We chose a diminished scale, um, which actually, you know, there's, there's in some sense a very objective reason to do that. The diminished scale is a symmetric scale. Um, it's right, it's a whole step followed by a half step followed by a whole step followed by a half step, et cetera. It does sound dark and, and, and a bit dissonant actually, but it is one of the most objective ways in which you can play. <laughs> uh, and so we chose that. So I don't think it was meant to convey a particular emotion or a particular feeling, but rather we were trying to mimic the objectivity of the data sonification approach. And as one of two violinists on this piece, were you responding to a particular set of sonified data or the whole sonification that you created? Ah, uh, I, you know, I would view the, the data sonification as, as another player in the ensemble, I guess. Um, and so I'm reacting both to the volcano, to the data, which is ultimately the, the director, I guess, the conductor, but also to the other musicians because I'm reacting musically to them. And of course, we, we don't react exactly in time with, uh, with the volcano. There's a bit of a lag. And so, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a subjective interpretation, but we are, we are trying to follow the contours of the data and create a piece of music around that. Would you be interested in hearing other interpretations of these sonified data sets by other musicians? Absolutely. You know, I view this work as, you know, very, very much in parallel to, you know, the great classical tradition of interpreting compositions. In this case, right, the volcano composed the music. <laughs> we, we have one interpretation of it. But, you know, the more the merrier, actually, and it would be fantastic if others took this on as well. 
Kilauea is as culturally significant as it is scientifically significant, as are many volcanoes. Do you think there's a role within the Volcano Listening Project for outreach to local and indigenous musicians to see their interpretations of sonified data sets from volcanoes? Absolutely. I, you know, in some ways, I'm, I'm well aware that what we're doing is, is, is not, it's not new, actually, right? You know, I think a lot of art and culture surrounding volcanoes you could view as very similar to what to what we are doing. You know, we're we're using you know modern scientific computational methods to interpret you know modern geophysical data. But in some sense, this is following in a great tradition that you know anyone who has ever been near a volcano certainly has has taken on. Um, so, so if there's an opportunity for, for, you know, us to complete the, the circle in some sense, right, to um, use the sonifications that we've created um, to motivate other interpretations, perhaps in a more traditional sense or, or however that may manifest, um, I would be really interested to see that happen. That was volcanologist and musician Leif Karlstrom of the Volcano Listening Project. He was speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the piece Hotel Kilauea. We'll have links to his work on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. to go now but up tomorrow we plan to talk to a cardiologist about heart health for athletes got a story you'd like to share leave your feedback on our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org find our archive shows online or by searching the conversation podcast on spotify and apple i'm katherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 